the more that we can build that sort of transparency and make the cost of veterinary care less scary for, for pet owners, the more that we're able to compete with these bigger organizations. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified small animal surgeon in Pennsylvania. We have a very exciting event coming up for you. The Veterinary Financial Summit is happening September 18th and 19th. We're going to be virtual again this year. Our conference is unique because it's 100% live and interactive. We're going to be talking about investing, student debt, practice ownership, management, passive income, and a lot more for you to learn about personal finance and practice finance. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more and sign up. Our guest today is Matt Saloy. He is the chief economist and the head of veterinary economics at the AVMA. He has a PhD in applied economics, and he uses statistics, economics, and communication to help veterinarians. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to see and talk to you, Meredith, and you too, Phil. So Matt, we recently saw a LinkedIn post from you about resilient companies. Given the recent events, what do you think makes a company resilient? And more specifically, what makes a vet practice resilient? Yeah, wow, it's a great question. And I think you could probably talk about that for an hour. Um, not that your we listeners have, may, may want to, but uh, we have all day. <laughs> and, you know, there are great thought leaders out there that talk a lot about, you know, resiliency. And obviously, you've got great thought leaders like, like Adam Grant, who has talked significantly about that. And just in our own profession, the concept of psychological safety and resiliency has just, I think, taken on a new, a new paradigm. When I think about resiliency from an economic perspective, I, I kind of think about it in business stability and, and business strategy and how to have a successful enterprise. And I put that in the context of what I call the three Ps for business stability, and that's productivity, people, and profit. And the productivity piece is about optimizing operations. And we know that veterinary teams are stretched thin and working harder than, than ever before. And it's making sure that those processes are in place to streamline operations and, and relieve some of that pressure, which is directly connected to the second P, which is the people part around supporting well-being across the organizational level. And people have lives inside and outside of a veterinary practice. And while things are really stressful to manage in this current environment within the practice, we can all be sure that the people outside are well or struggling with the same things that, that we're struggling with. So supporting people is really key. And the third P, I think, is around prosperity and trying to be as forward thinking as you can about solutions to build business success. And whether that's profitability or business performance, I think it's around trying to make that pivot to whether the economic downturn or the economic volatility that we're experiencing, and certainly we're in recovery mode, but Focusing on innovation as a key component of, of stability and resiliency is just, is just critically important. And sometimes folks don't like to talk about profit. I, I put it in the context of focusing on the economic sustainability of your practice. We're all in this to deliver the best care that we can to patients, deliver a great experience to clients. And in order to do that, you have to be economically sustainable in order to, to be able to provide that. So again, the three Ps, people, productivity, and prosperity. 
right. I love it. And so, Matt, so I follow you on LinkedIn, of course, and I recommend anybody out there follow Matt on LinkedIn because he posts a lot of interesting graphics and stats, and it's really relevant to practicing vets. And Matt, you're also known on LinkedIn for something else. You're known for your puns and you're known for dad jokes. So could you tell us your best dad joke? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. The, the pressure is on there. And I got to say, I got, I got kind of roped into this. Some, some folks, uh, Josh Weissman and Emily Lankow, and just a great community of others that are on LinkedIn. So I'm not alone there. There are, there are others, I, I got to say. And I don't know about you know, my best dad joke, I, you know, I think, you know, this pandemic has changed all of our lives. And for me, probably most of all, it, it affected my diet. And, and I find myself becoming much more of a, of a vegan, well, really a social vegan, because I'm just avoiding meat right now. Um, meat, M-E-E-T. It's all in the delivery, folks. It's in the delivery. I'm not sure I got that one. You know, you're good. This is good. So with the pandemic, too, I've had a lot more time on my hands. And, you know, all these musicians, they're offering virtual concerts now. And there was a there was a great one. It was a super deal. It was only 45 cents. And uh, yeah, it was featuring 50 Cent with Nickelback. Great concert. (laughs) Okay. so um, I'm shaking my head. No, I don't know if your (laughs) listeners will be able to see that. But just so they know, I'm shaking my head. No, I disapprove, too. So in other news, um, what do you think um, practice owners can do to minimize the effects of economic downturns? In other words, if hopefully we don't have another pandemic, but if something else happens, what can we do to be proactive? Yeah, that's a great question, Phil. And I think there's a lot of different things, you know, and a lot of great companies and consultants have looked at this. You know, I always turn to the Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey for a lot of great insights that they share. And they've done some significant work here and looked at how successful companies have emerged through previous economic downturns. You know, probably the most significant ones in the last, you know, couple of decades have been the dot-com bust in the early 2000s and, of course, the the major significant recession in, in 08. And I think one of the things that they found um, were, firstly, companies were the more successful ones that weathered that storm were much more nimble and responsive. They weren't afraid to change. Um, they knew they had to make an adaptation to what they were doing, whether it was um, adopting new business strategies, um, refocusing their, their, their target clients, or it was adopting new technologies and innovations. And I think we've, we've seen that in veterinary medicine, which is great. I think we could talk at length about the many changes practices have made in order to deliver care. The second thing that they found is, you know, bring it back to what I talked about earlier about people is they focused on the people and they did their best to avoid layoffs, to avoid letting letting people go, because it's really costly when the economy does bounce back and it always does bounce back to get those people back, to get that talent back. Um, and I think this was a really great thing, too, that we experienced in veterinary medicine. You know, it's, it's hard to believe it's been a year now, but if we look back and a year ago around you know March, April, May, when we were going through those huge downturns in revenue and visits and a lot of practices were significantly concerned about, if not having to close their doors, about having to let people go. And thankfully so many staved that off because if they didn't, they would be in a really significant bind because we're in the polar opposite situation now with things running 
running red hot. So it's, you know, it's be nimble, it's be responsive. Don't be afraid to adopt new approaches, new technologies, new innovations to streamline your efficiencies. And, and again, bringing it back to the people, focus on your people. One thing your colleagues, um, oh, I'm not going to say complain, but mention is an increased number of prescription requests from online pharmacies. So what do you think we should do to respond to increased competition from the pet med expresses of the world and Chewy and Amazon and so on and so forth? What strategies can we use? I think there's a lot there and it, and it's not going to make it any easier. Anything I'm going to say, it's a hugely difficult environment to be in, especially as an independent practice, which for all intents and purposes is generally a small business, at least the majority of them. You certainly have your larger practices and your large group regional and national practices, but um, even they can find it really difficult to to compete in a in an omni-channel environment like we're in with e-commerce just um, ballooning as it is, and these huge, massive companies that have a significant presence like like Amazon and like Chewy. And, you know, I think a few things I'll say, and I'll try to keep it as as brief as possible, but. I think the most important thing is to focus on cultivating an authentic relationship with your clients. And, you know, like you said, you, you hear this often, I hear it often, you know, I can't compete with Chewy. I can't, I can't be them. I can't be Amazon. And that's wholly correct. You, you can't be them. You can't be Amazon or Chewy, but they can't be you either. And the veterinary practice has one of the best conduits to cultivate that authentic relationship with the client, with the pet owner. And that's interaction. And, and that interaction is going, always going to trump the transaction, which is fundamentally what's happening here with, with Chewy and Amazon. There's a level of intimacy between a, a veterinarian and, and a client and the patient that you can't replicate in an online uh, venue. You can try. There are things that you can do, but you always have the best opportunity to cultivate that relationship, you know, within the practice. Even in even in a, an environment like we're in with curbside care, it's still powerful. Um, now that that means, I think a number of things that we're going to have to let go of, and I think we have let go of, and that's products and pharmacy and prescription drugs aren't going to be the primary revenue generator that they were in the past. Uh, because it's too easy for that to be commoditized. Um, but what it means is a much more greater opportunity to focus on services um, and the delivery of veterinary care to be the way and the avenue to build value and generate that relationship with, with clients. And others have successfully staved off Amazon as well, and others like them. We, shouldn't, we should learn from those lessons and, and not put ourselves into the position where we think it's not possible. You know, it was what, almost 15, 20 years or so ago when, when Best Buy was on the verge of collapse um, and everyone thought that Amazon was going to do them in, that that was the end of Best Buy. And it would become like a joke, like you go into Best Buy just to check out the merchandise, but price check with Amazon and you know, literally you know, order from your phone and, and Best Buy uh, from Amazon and have it delivered to your door a few years, a few years later. Um, you know, but here we are, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later, and Best Buy is not only still here, but they're thriving. And, and they did a number of things, I think, that um, allowed them to capitalize on their strengths and mitigate their weaknesses in order to compete in this omni-channel environment. You know, I look young, but I'm, I'm actually old enough to remember when 
distemper vaccines were given once a year. And so <laughs> to me, what you're talking about, it's, it's not unlike when we went from doing vaccines yearly to doing vaccines every three years. And people said, oh, well, now we're not going to have that, uh, that yearly vaccine revenue source. And then people started saying, okay, well, that's where we really need to dig in and we need to uh, focus on the, the yearly blood work and we need to focus on the, the checkup and the physical exam and, and focus on the services. So it's actually kind of similar to that shift in a way. It, it really is. Um, and I think that offers a lot of opportunity for veterinarians in the practice in order to focus on what they do best which is deliver the best possible uh, veterinary care to, to clients, to patients. Um, and I think that offers a broad, a broad scope. Now, it doesn't mean that we're off the hook when it comes to competition and, and pricing and, and other things. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to um, be more transparent in the price and cost of veterinary care. And there's lots of strategies we can do there. You know, I've said this um, before, but you know, Amazon didn't become successful because it hid prices from you. It became successful because it, it allowed you the opportunity to price compare and give you so much more information, product reviews, uh, customer testimonials, um, opportunities to shop and compare other products that are related to what you're looking for. And I think the more that we can build that sort of transparency and make the cost of veterinary care less scary for, for pet owners, the more that we're able to compete with these bigger organizations by, by bringing, again, bringing it back to the focus on veterinary care and services. Yeah, and, and you know, affordable access has really become a more frequently discussed topic in our profession recently uh, with vaccine and low-cost clinics and spay-neuter clinics, that sort of thing. And at the same time, practice owners need to be able to stay in business and then also take care of their team's well-being. And so is there a way to, to reconcile the two concepts uh, where we need to charge enough so that we can stay in business and take care of everyone, but then there are also a lot of pets out there that aren't getting care at all? Yeah, you, you hit on a really critical issue, Meredith. And, you know, not only is there an imperative need to do that, to, to create that balance, um, but but there, there are ways to do that. And again, it's not, there's no cookbook for this, right? There's not anything that's recipe driven uh, as frustrating as that is to everybody. You want to be able to open the book and say, these are the steps that I need to do. Um, but I, that said, I think that there are broad principles that help set you in the right direction to achieve that. Um, and I think it's understanding what the other side of that balance looks like. So if you're finding that out of balance, it, it's asking why and what you can do to bring it back in. Uh, so to make that more to make that more real and tangible, throw a statistic out there. One that again I talk a lot about is the thirty percent of pet owners that don't see a veterinarian at, at least once a year, and it varies a lot by by cats and dogs. It's a little lower for dogs. It's it's a little higher for cats. Um, but we've done a lot of work, and I say we. Yes, the the economics division at AVMA, but others have looked at this as well, and you generally find a lot of consensus in terms of the reason why. And, and one of the leading reasons of why these pet owners aren't going once a year, there's two really big ones. The first one is they don't see the need. They're only going when, the, when their pet is sick or injured and they're not really understanding or, or not um, 
the value of preventive wellness care isn't clear to them. Um, and the second group is they, they feel like they can't afford. So they, they put, you know, I'm afraid of the cost or I, I don't have the money, so I'm, I'm not going to go. And once you, once you realize that and you have this window, you can then begin to uh, create approaches and ways to bring that value proposition back into balance. So with that second group where it's affordability is a problem, it's going to what I talked about before around building price transparency. They don't, they don't fully understand the cost of veterinary care, and they may not know that the veterinarian can present some options for them to fit within their budget, as well as they might not be aware that a practice is offering lots of tools and approaches to afford veterinary care, whether that's um, advocating for pet insurance or uh, providing payment plans, financing options, credit tools in order to do that. And so I think the more that we can build that visibility and transparency um, to the affordability of care and how to manage the cost of care, you start to, to mitigate that. And then with the other one around, they're not understanding the value of veterinary care. We really need to communicate the importance of, of preventative well care and to do so an approach that, that resonates, right? Like it's one thing just to say, wellness care is important. You need your vaccines, right? I mean, so there's a language to developing that that trust. And we actually talked a bit about this last year at the 2020 um, uh, Economic Summit, where we we partnered with a language strategy firm to understand what is the language that resonates with a pet owner, particularly those that aren't really seeing the value of, of veterinary care. And we learned a lot of interesting things around uh, you know, how we frame this in order to be more successful. And there's a lot there. But you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me was the importance of anchoring to the health and happiness of our pets from the onset, you know, shows pet owners that that you're on the same team and, and gives you permission to continue that conversation. And it's not about guilting them or using statistics, which we might not think are scare tactics, but the pet owner might think is scare tactics, saying like, well, if you don't do this, something, you know, could happen with your pet's health. But it's pushing it on, on the positive. Um, it, lots, lots more that we could talk about there, but I think there are approaches that we can we can turn to to help better communicate that that value of veterinary care back to the pet owner. So when you talk about anchoring, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I I would just want to make sure that we're on the same page and and that folks out there know what we're talking about. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things there. I think understanding that being a pet owner is about is about connection. So there's an emotional appeal. And that's always really the most resonant way in, into the conversation. I'm an economist. I'm sad it's not data and numbers. But I think we're all humans at the end of the day. So I think we can understand that. And with pet owners, you know, they describe it, you know, as an analogy to caring for a family member as, as, as positive and, and relatable. And the other side of that is the balance piece. So a lot of pet owners agree they love their pet like their family, but they also push back on parallels that suggest pets need the exact same care as a human family member. Um, and they have this ne negative visceral reaction to language like vulnerable and, and deadly that threatens the worst case. So it's trying to push it back at a more positive approach. Um, and, and reminding owners that you know, animals, their pets can't ask for help. P positioning in that way is a helpful reminder that they need to be their their pet's advocate. You know, and this is you know, some related work that was done in the pharmacy space, you know, a number of years ago. Um, they were finding misuse uh, 
of, of medications post pickup of prescription. Um, and what, what commonly ended the conversation or the transaction between the, the pharmacist and the patient was, um, do you have any questions? And that's the opportunity for patients to understand, you know, again, when am I supposed to take this? How frequently, you know, confirm that they've got it right. But when it's framed that way, do you have any questions? From the person's perspective, they took that as, well, I should know the answer. And I'm afraid to ask a question because it's probably going to be perceived as a dumb question. So, no, I'm not going to ask any questions. And pharmacists became aware of this. Uh, but, you know, it's busy and they can't really pull this out of, out of the person. Well, behavioral work was done to understand how do they reframe that conversation. And instead of saying, do you have any questions? It was, what questions can I answer for you? And, you know, it's a subtle change, but it had a tremendous impact. Suddenly it created an open door where it was less threatening for the person to say, oh, okay, well, I do have some questions. Remind me again, you know, how often am I supposed to take this or the time of day and those types of things. And so again, that, that pivot in the language is so critical to getting the response that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because we can, we can use that um, immediately. I mean, it, it's something that we can use in our, our everyday conversations with clients. Just what questions do you have for me um, versus do you have any questions? So you talked about this past year's AVMA Economic Summit. Uh, we met at the 2019 Economic Summit, the last in-person, you know, back when yeah. conferences were in-person, right? <laughs> Seems so long ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah you, did, you really did a great job helping to, to organize that event and, and host that event. And I remember Lisa Greenhill from the AAVMC. She was yeah. talking about financial literacy. And she was explaining how it doesn't always translate to behavior change. Right. And so what does translate to behavior change when it comes to our finances? Yeah, great question. And thanks for that. And, you know, here's another wonderful thing that I'm sure you both also feel connected to is working in this space of veterinary medicine. There are just so many wonderful, brilliant people that are dedicated to changing things for the better. And Dr. Lisa Greenhill is definitely one of them. And um, any event, as you know, too, is only as good as the people that you can bring into it to share their expertise. So um, we were really fortunate to, to get Dr. Greenhill's um, guidance in 2019. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, going back to what we just talked about, too, it's driving that emotional connection. That's, that's where you start to change behavior is when you can connect it back to the emotion. And, you know, it's unfortunate as, we, as it is, you know, but it's a great finding of knowing that while financial education can improve financial literacy, it's not going to change financial behaviors. And knowing that is really important as we start to talk about issues like student debt and, and financial security, because if we want to turn the dials on that more effectively, we need to understand what those approaches are. And, and to, you know, I think to understand why that's the case, you know, just put it in an example. I mean, let's just talk about like exercise and diet. You know, I think we all have a general idea of the need to do more of these things. Uh, diet better, exercise more. Um, and those that aren't succeeding in, in doing enough of that, you can, you can educate them. You can tell them, you know, this is what a good diet looks like. This is, this is why it's important. This is what a healthy exercise routine looks like. This is why you need to do it. Again, this is what good financial decisions look like. This is why you need to do it. 
But what we all know is that doesn't change behavior in many cases. You can educate someone on the importance of diet, exercise, and sound financial decision-making, but that doesn't really necessarily translate, as we know, into changing those behaviors. What does is connecting it to the emotion. So in the examples of diet and exercise, having something like MyFitnessPal, where you're cataloging everything that you eat and it adds up the calories and balances that against your caloric requirements and starts to give you red flags that that that, that jelly donut might have been good, but that put you just over the edge in your sugar intake, right? Or, you know, obviously the Fitbit's a, you know, really great example um, around, well, you know, I, I, I walk up and down the stairs. That's my morning commute. You know, surely I'm getting my steps in. And then, you know, <laughs> you, you, know you actually got a thousand steps in when you should be doing 10, you know. So we internalize these things, but metrics like that, devices like that connect it to the emotion. Um, and I think that's where we need to head towards if we're going to want to start to make a difference and an impact and addressing, you know, changes with respect to financial behavior. Hmm. So a Fitbit for your finances. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a <laughs> Fitbit for your finances. That wouldn't be bad. Um, and I and I think, you know, Lisa talked a lot about some other things in, in, in her in her talk a couple of years ago around what could bring it back to that um, emotional appeal, I think. And it's it's going into the context around understanding why is someone applying to veterinary school? And we can tell them that, well, it costs this much and you got to be careful about debt because you could end up in that much debt. But if cost isn't a driving decision point in someone's decision to be a veterinarian, informing them about the cost of, of education isn't going to necessarily result in a different decision. So understanding the emotional um, uh, context of of how and why students are making decisions for veterinary school, or maybe even specifically which veterinary schools that they're applying to, can help us better understand how we need to communicate. Um, it, again, it's bringing it back to the emotional context of the decision itself. Great. So Matt, I heard a rumor. I heard that money can't buy happiness. <laughs> so what's your take on the relationship between money and well-being? That rumor wasn't started by an economist. It must have been one of those pesky sociologists. They're always, no, I'm kidding. That's a that's a joke. I love sociologists. I they're who doesn't a lot of, who doesn't right? Um, you know, I, yes and no. I think it. I think fundamentally that's true. Um, you you can't buy happiness. Otherwise, we'd all be happy, right? Um, I think what it does is it provides the opportunity to afford security. And, and security is a precondition for being happy. Um, and you can be, and this is a pejorative term, but you can be poor, but you can also be secure. Poor by the standards of society in the sense of, well, maybe my house is small and I don't have an expensive car. Um, but if you're secure and you know that you can, where your food is coming from, where you, that you have safe housing, that you, you're employed and, and gainfully, I think you will live a very, rich, happy life, irregardless of where you stand on the socioeconomic ladder. I think for us, it's understanding at what point is that money going towards security versus just trying to fulfill these endless needs and wants and, and probably more of the wants that we think we need. Um, it, it, no, I don't think it buys happiness. I think it does allow the opportunity to create security, financial security, which is so critically important. And you need that if you are going to be happy. If you are in a constant state of 
financial insecurity where you're concerned about your employment, you're concerned about making your rent or your mortgage payment, you're concerned about not sure if you're going to be able to have enough money at the end of the month um, to make sure that you have a, a pantry with food in it to feed yourself or your family. You, you can't be happy in that context. And so I think that's important when you think about just global goals around you know, food security and, and closing the poverty gap around how can we can create a secure economy, a secure society where these sort of necessary needs are, are, are met. So on that note, COVID has increased revenue for most practices, uh, clinics, associates, pet, um, practice owners, everybody's thriving financially. But it happened that the expense of the wellness of the teams. So what do you think separates the practices that are thriving strictly based on increased demand from those that are thriving because they've adapted in ways that made them more successful? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question, too. Um, and I think here's the double edged sort of thing. So just, you know, at a macro lens, we've all seen some of the numbers and metrics and we see and listen to the anecdotes. And, and right now, just from a broad perspective, things are looking really good. Revenue is up. Um, and we know that there was a non-trivial number of, of adoptions of pets, which hopefully will continue to sustain a, a bit of a demand bump in the future there uh, for veterinarians and, and veterinary care. But it doesn't come without its costs. And I think we all know that with what we talk a lot about in this profession, this industry, with some of the well-being, particularly issues around burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, Phil. You know, I'll bring it back to a couple of words I brought up at the beginning, which is productivity and, and people. You know, I think at the productivity side, the harder you have to work to do something, the more likely you are to burn out and generate issues around around well-being. You know, one analogy I like to use is imagine you're you're on a lake and you got a canoe and you're you're getting to the other side, you're rowing to the other side of the lake, and normally this is going to be a really joyful experience because the weather is great. You like the outdoors. Um, however, you're halfway across the lake and suddenly there's a hole that emerges in, in your boat, in your canoe, and you're sinking. So not only now are you trying to paddle to get to the other side, but you're trying to scoop out water so that you don't, you don't sink. And life is like that right now because productivity has taken a big hit. And yet we have this storm of COVID, of this pandemic that's still sort of looming over us. So it's like that. You're, you're stuck in the middle of the lake, you're taking on water, but now there's a thunder and lightning storm pelting you with rain and, and you're, you're freaked out. I think COVID did a lot of that. I think we're starting to come out of that storm a bit as we vaccinations get rolled out and we're beginning to feel a bit more safe around things. And so that storm is subsiding, but the productivity problems remain. And all these pivots that we've had to make weren't without their costs, curbside care, pivoting to electronic payment systems and the endless calls, trying to do whatever you could over the phone to still converse and deliver care and have conversations with, with pet owners in the car, this phone is ringing all the time. And trying to manage all these digital communications that we're leveraging, not just telemedicine, but just simple things like text messages and, and trading voicemails with pet owners. There's a lot of things that practices are having to grapple with that they weren't having to grapple before and making sure that they're staging their appointments and things so that they can manage these, these curbside appointments. Our productivity has taken a huge hit uh, in 2020. And so everyone's having to work harder to do the same amount of work that they were before. 
And that's really pushing burnout. The other thing is the people side of things. So yes, they're veterinarians and they're in this practice delivering veterinary care, but they're also a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a son or a daughter. And they're managing all the stress that we are all living with too, whether it's trying to manage virtual care, a virtual education, excuse me, for their children, trying to manage the stress and strain of keeping a loved one safe, uh, free from illness, um, transmission of COVID, all of these things add, add pressure. And so it's really important that practice owners, um, uh, leaders within a practice understand this um, and, and work with their teams to help create an environment where that psychological safety exists and that there's a positive uh, team culture and, and, and attitude and behavior within the practice. Because that can go a huge long way in addressing some of these well-being issues that, that, we're, that we're confronting. So, Matt, can you talk a little bit more about psychological safety? Because I've been hearing more about that lately, but uh, I'd like to hear a good definition or example of it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm the best person to create a definition of it. I think there are definitely some thought leaders out there um, who you haven't talked to would be worth definitely having a broader discussion, maybe even an entire podcast about. But I think, you know, just loosely... It's being able to exist in an environment without fear or negative consequences around um, expressing yourself as a, as a person. You know, I think in the context of a work environment, like, like a veterinary practice, it's a commonly held shared belief amongst the team that exists there that the team is safe and it's okay to take interpersonal risks um, without huge penalty. And, you know, what I'm talking about in terms of interpersonal risk is just maybe speaking your mind. Um, maybe there's a meeting and there's a discussion on, you know, what, what the right priority is for the day. And, and maybe you have a different idea because you have a different window into what's going on at the practice. Uh, a personal, an interpersonal risk would be speaking up. But if psychological safety doesn't exist there, you're not going to you're not going to raise your hand and say hey i have a different idea because then there's a fear that there's going to be a consequence to that um mm-hmm. that's an economist interpretation of psychological safety um but adam grant or or josh weissman or others you know definitely will will have a lot more to say on that mm-hmm. and so would you say that the practices that are that are thriving in this environment as far as the the team success and and not burning out, even with everything that's going on with COVID, those are the ones that have a better culture and have that level of psychological safety? Absolutely. And, you know, I'd love to explore a data-driven approach to confirming that. Um, I don't have that precisely in veterinary medicine, but have looked at a lot of the literature in the human side around the role of these factors in burnout in medical practice and a physician practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they found is that these organizational factors like the work environment, uh, work efficiency, process workflow management, and, and work culture, uh, the role of the leader, the quality of leadership within a practice, are by far the dominant drivers of the level of burnout that's within that medical practice. Um, and I think this is a game changer for us a bit. And I think you know our evolution of learning culturally as a society is constantly pushing the boundaries of what we know and understand and veterinary medicine, a piece of that. And there are individual things that we can do to manage our burnout, individual things like, yes, 
get more sleep, uh, eat a better diet, exercise, maybe limit screen time. Um, but those don't address often the original sources of that burnout, which can, in many cases, are the source of origin is the work environment for whatever case, maybe because it's caustic, um, maybe because there's poor leadership, uh, maybe because that psychological safety doesn't exist. Maybe it's because there's not a real solid culture and people just don't feel well connected to one another. And so by addressing that, you would start to address the root cause and could be much more successful in elevating well-being overall and reducing burnout when you take that sort of mindset around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for going through that with us. I know it's not your area of expertise, but, <laughs> uh, but your points have been really helpful and I think it's important to talk about it. It definitely have a huge passion for it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why it's just so great to take a multidisciplinary approach to some mm-hmm. of these issues in veterinary medicine. I think economics is a really powerful lens. I love economics. Um, and not everything can be a- extracted to a mathematical formula, right? So talking with sociologists, psychologists, and, and, and others who have expertise in this space just amplifies, I think, our ability to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. So Matt, do you have data that can tell us if the percentage of practices that are thriving now versus before COVID? In, in a way, in a way, uh, you know, thriving is such a complicated term. Um, and, I, you know, one, one approach or at least one, uh, one piece of thriving is how productive are they? How efficient is this practice? We, and we do track this. So we do an annual survey of, of practices, specifically of practice owners um, in the economics division at AVMA. And uh, we developed this efficiency index that we've regularly reported in our annual report and our, at our economic event. Um, and, and really loosely, it just it takes the, the key inputs into delivering veterinary care, um, labor, primarily DVMs, technicians, and so forth. And then we look a little bit around the features of the practice, how big it is, uh, how many exam rooms does it have, things like that. And then it, translate, it translates it into uh, how effective are they at uh, putting that into veterinary care? And and really, it's it's how many animals can they see per week and how much revenue is generated. Now, the world is wholly more complicated than that. Reducing efficiency to that, you miss some things. But it's a commonly held approach in economics to do that. And it's a really great way to then start to make comparisons of how other practices are are performing. And so we, we present that, that efficiency score, that efficiency index uh, regularly. And even before COVID, we were finding this really troubling um, conclusion that around 50% of practices that we surveyed were falling into this, what we would call low or or, um, concerningly low levels of efficiency and productivity. Um, And 2020, that leaped to almost 70% of practices. And so I think that was just really a reflection of some of these things that we've talked about around all these different changes that practices have made. And also keep in mind the timing of this survey too, which was around June or July of last year. I think we've come a long way since then of refining, perfecting, improving these pivots that we've had to make so that they work more effectively. Simple things like telling people where to park their car in a curbside environment, and having a sign of which number to call, right? Like just simple things like that can can you have a tremendous improvement over how you manage that that workflow. So it'll be really interesting when we survey the, them again uh, to see what what changes happen in that that efficiency score. 
Um, but it is an area of opportunity and is an area of improvement for our profession to help create a more thriving practice by improving that, that productivity, that efficiency piece. All right. Well, this has been a lot of great information, Matt. Thank you so much. And now we're coming to our last couple of questions. And so, Matt, as an economist, what is your best advice for our listeners? Oh, wow. There's so much. Um, I think there's never one answer for one for, for any given question. I think, you know, what I've learned around is um, life's a distribution. And so you ask someone a question and you give them a single answer, you can do that. But I think that doesn't do credit or justice to the fact that life is complicated. And so, you know, in the space of economics or statistics, which I live in a lot, it's never giving a single number if someone's asking me something like how much. It's giving a, a distribution around that. Um, it's that, that confidence interval, right? It's that margin of error that, that exists out there. And so, and I think what that translates to is, is be cautious. If you're asking how to solve a problem and you only get one answer and, and it's, this, it's this is the answer or it's nothing, just be cautious about that. Because I think that doesn't, again, do justice to the fact that, that life is complicated and there's a distribution around every, every need. All right. And now as a person and a longtime observer of vets and their teams and practices, what's your best advice for our listeners? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I think it's knowing and feeling that you are a part of probably one of the most uh, deeply admired, valued and trusted professions that there is. And I've had a, a good experience of working in a multitude of industries. And I have to say, without question, this, this profession of veterinary medicine um, has amongst the most smartest, um, most humble and most dedicated of people who are really committed to not, what, not just the occupation that they've chosen, but committed to making it a better place. And when you have that, I mean, the, the world's your oyster, right? Anything is possible. And so just know that you are valued, you are trusted, and you are just so deeply admired and respected and needed. I can't, imagine, I can't think of another career, another occupation, another profession like veterinary medicine that touches on so many important areas of our lives, of these wonderful companions that enrich our lives, uh, of the farm animals that help maintain a, a source of nutrition across the world, uh, understanding the connectivity between... Um, animals and sustainability and, and the environment and, you know, how to manage and keep people safe from zoonotic diseases and other things. It's just, it touches on so many important areas of areas of our life. And I think it's always good to remind everyone of that. So Matt, before we part ways, can you please share just one more dad joke? <laughs> oh no, Phil. Um, I was afraid you were going to ask that because, you know, I was trying to uh, search my, my database, but it doesn't seem to be responding. Um, but instead, I'll just share some bad news. I, I broke my finger today and I, I really don't feel so great. But on the other hand, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> there, there's always more where that came from. <laughs> All right. Excellent, Matt. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, yeah. anytime. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you both. Good luck with the, the podcast. Um, I love what you both are doing and just thanks for what you do in the industry and the profession. Well, thank you. I think one of the, the main um, things that I appreciate you, you said is that in, instead of trying to fight Amazon and PetMed Express and Chewy, there's no way we can. So why waste so much time and energy doing that? Let's find other ways to wow our clients. There's so many ways you can, we can wow them. That's what we should focus on. Absolutely. You said it so much better than what I did earlier, but <laughs> find ways that we can wow them. What do we do well? What do we do best? And really just focus in on that because that's how we'll win. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Thanks, Meredith. Matt. Take care. Thanks so much for listening today. We would absolutely love to have you join us virtually at the Vet Financial Summit this September. Check out vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.